I'm Victoria Doherty, and welcome to the cold. Cold is the way revenge is best served, the way a war was fought, and the way a story should be told. And we are going deep into family lore this week in the cold as we continue our weekly dive into story, the stories that make up our lives, the stories we tell, the stories we invent, the stories that mean something to us. And this week, I am telling you a story that means a great deal to me. It is about my late father, who, although we were not close, at least not in any way that one would describe close, he was, he has been a very big part of my life and and certainly his life and his influence on my life has, has been huge, both in how I approach my work and my fiction and in how, um, well, and in how I have thought to live my own life. Um, Sometimes in reaction to his. I am a Cheka. That's something my father would always announce, you know? I mean, it was as if all of us should know what that means, other than recognizing that it is his family name. See, the communists had taken over Czechoslovakia when he was a boy, stealing his family's estate and fortune. But my father continued to carry with him this sense of pride about being a Cheka. One he took with him from the cold water flat he shared with my mom and siblings in Prague, all the way to his simple one-room rentals in Chicago. I mean, he strode the public beaches of his retirement state of Florida with the imperious detachment of a noble surveying his lands. As a child, I had a fascination with my father, mostly because of this highfalutin family of his. I mean, the dichotomy between the way he lived his life and the Downton Abbey circumstances of his birth couldn't have been starker. And his eccentric behaviors were the stuff of legend in the Czech immigrant community. How he hated to bathe, his pathological obsession with being in the outdoors, his extreme miserliness, and of course the crazy shit he would say. I mean, the stories about him were the only way I knew him throughout most of my girlhood. My, my parents divorced when I was a baby, and right around the time I entered kindergarten, my mom married a man who would raise and later adopt me, effectively erasing my father's physical presence from my life. I did have some tangible memories of visits with Biodad, as I called him. I remembered that he introduced me to banana ice cream, for instance, and that he taught me how to ski. But between about age 5 and age 18, I saw him only once. 
And that visit was a strange and awkward lunch orchestrated by my mom when I was about 12 years old. She spent much of the hour or so we sat in this nearly empty diner, specifying all the ways in which I resembled the Chica family. You know, my brow, my jawline, she even pointed to the knuckles on my hand, comparing them to my father's. I felt like a bit like a thing at that lunch, you know, constantly being referenced, but never really engaged. <laughs> you nervous? I remember my father saying, and then he laughed. Now, until that day, my mother had advocated for a persona non grata policy towards her ex-husband and father of her children. And with no further explanation, she went right back to that policy, as if our weird little interlude had never happened. Then, out of the blue, when I was about 18, my brother called me up with a proposition. Want to have lunch with Tata? He asked me. You don't have to, but I should tell you that I've started seeing him again, and I thought you might find it interesting. I thought about it for a few seconds, just to assess where my gut feeling stood on the prospect of opening what was potentially a pretty big can of worms. I mean, I knew my mom hoped we would never see our father again, and she truly had not a single positive word to say about the man. She wasn't the only one, and I'd tried this lunch business one time before. Yet without hesitation, I said yes. And so began a rather curious relationship, a father-daughter bond that was based not on shared memories, communal values, or anything resembling love. It was a bond of family history, of missed opportunity, of, of ghosts, and of oddities. It was also, at its core, an animal bond of blood. I mean, after our first self-conscious meeting in my father's attic apartment in suburban Chicago, um, you know, I was shown family photos and my father strummed Czech folk songs on his guitar. Well, after that, we settled into a routine that really did suit us both. It was dinner and a movie. Typically, my father and I would meet at a Czech restaurant, since that's the only food he liked, and then we'd rifle through the theater listings and settle on something. Our dinner conversations were quirky but easy and mostly centered around his visits to the old country or nature, opera, but only if it was Czech opera, and the Czech immigrant dances he liked to frequent. As we moved on from restaurant to cinema, the conversation would continue as if we hadn't changed venues at all. Uninterested in stories that weren't by or about Czechs, which is the vast majority of them, my father would speak loudly about random topics during our film of choice, provoking shushes and dirty looks that he was completely oblivious to. In a packed theater for the 1995 Brad Pitt 
vehicle. Seven. I mean, things almost came to blows when my father wouldn't stop complaining about the absence of beautiful nature in the film. Look at it, it's terrible, he called out. There are no mountains, no lakes, no nothing, just ugliness. Then there were the dates when we wouldn't even make it to the movies at all. If the weather was good, my father would just pull over to any body of water, no matter how dubious, strip naked, and go for a dip. Come in, he would call. I'd point to the prominent no swimming sign and remind him that I didn't bring my suit. My father would shrug and splash around, delighting in this interlude as freely as if he were a water bird. Shouts of, hey, asshole, put on some clothes, would blast out of car windows, and he wouldn't even look up to see where they'd come from. He was in his own world. And despite the occasional embarrassment, I admired that about him. My father was a man without self-consciousness, an animal in the wild. It was only when he was outdoors swimming, foraging for mushrooms, that he felt any real kinship, a relationship to something other than his routine. It was nice to see him happy. On the rare occasions when my father would attempt to give me life advice, his counsel would take on the perspective of a 1950s public service announcement voiced by a crotchety Count Dracula. Worried that I was in my late 20s and still single, he once berated me in front of an entire restaurant. He was banging his hand on our table as he shouted, You have to face the facts. Women's brains are smaller than the men's. And after age 30, you won't be marketable anymore. You will dry up and your your cheka jeans will die. Oh, poor dry, mini-brained me, whatever will I do, I sighed, putting my hand to my forehead very dramatically. (laughs) It's not funny! You are a shaker, and this is your life, he cried. I mean, he was in genuine anguish about the state of my affairs as a single woman and small business owner at that time. My life as a college graduate and a chocolatier, um at that time, (laughs) seemed to him to be just a dead end, a complete failure. By the time I married, which was like the greatest day of his life, and my children were born, my father had retired from his job as an electrical engineer, and he would drive down to see my family at our home in Virginia. Now, his visits were characterized, well, first, by their surprise nature, because he never called in advance to tell us that he was coming. He would just show up at our doorstep. Um, And they were also characterized by his hygiene. On his first drop into our new house in our new state, I found that he'd stopped bathing entirely, except in lakes and streams. I like to smell like the earth he was fond of saying, and I don't have to go to work anymore, so who cares? People who have to sit next to you care, I told him. 
but his unusual behavior was always tinged with a bit of romance and culture with a capital C. He would play passionate Dvořák concertos on our piano beautifully, only he'd do it at 2 a.m. and seem genuinely perplexed when I would come downstairs and ask him to give it a rest. The kids have school tomorrow. Uh, they should listen to the classical Czech composers, he'd say, dismissing me. They are the best. Well, of course, I said, but couldn't they do it in the afternoon? My middle daughter, Charlotte, never quite got over the fact that her grandfather gave her a dirty, broken moose keychain that he found on the side of the road for her eighth birthday. It works perfectly fine, he said. Or that he kept calling her Scarlet, no matter how many times she corrected him. Yet, once a year, he sent us a $300 check specifying that it was to be distributed equally between our three children, Eamon, Scarlett, and Josephine, and my husband and I were not to use any of it for ourselves. Do you honestly think I would steal the Christmas money you sent to our kids? How would I know, he said. I didn't raise you, and you are only half Cheka, although you seem to have many of our excellent qualities. Those excellent qualities he identified as being cleverish, my writing ability, a 19th century Chaco was sort of like the Czech Emerson, and my enthusiasm for physical fitness. Chacos are hardy, he told me. While our actual personalities had all the common properties of chalk and cheese, I couldn't help appreciating his cockamamie perspective on things. I can't believe you see that idiot, my mom would grumble. She considered the day her divorce was granted as the happiest day of her life and couldn't fathom why we'd reconnected with our father, especially when she felt like she'd gone to such lengths to spare us from him. There's something wrong with that man. Everybody knows it. She had a point. I mean, my brother, a clinical psychologist, believed a right brain disorder could have been at the root of our father's you know, more peculiar behaviors. Ones that got him into trouble here and there, like getting a beer bottle broken over his head or getting fired for insulting his boss. He had a way of blurting out the sorts of observations most people keep to themselves, if they know what's good for them. You know, things like, your wife is very ugly, but perhaps she is good cook, so it doesn't matter to you. Yes, he actually said that. His candor was second only to his miserliness, and the two often found themselves in good company. My father was known to crow about how he'd gotten out of paying child support by letting my stepdad adopt my brother and me. And in, and in the same breath, he'd tell me how he felt cheated out of a relationship with us and blamed my mother for that. I mean, not for bad-mouthing him, which she did all the time, but for reporting his delinquent child support payments to the court. Yet he continued to be in love with her for the rest of his life and wouldn't even consider remarrying despite several long-term relationships. I am already married, he'd say, and a wife costs money. 
My father took a great deal of pride in the fact that my brother and I had continued the Cheka line. Yet our efforts to help him integrate into our lives and into the lives of his grandchildren largely fell flat. Or rather, they would begin with a certain level of enthusiasm and then fade away like a temporary tattoo. While our father had indicated that he wanted to be a part of our lives and he was clearly lonely, his solitary nature chafed at the idea that he might be held responsible for something as simple as remembering birthdays. In the last few years of his life, he became particularly distant from us, communicating mostly by intermittent email, with his surprise visits becoming fewer and farther in between. But still, still we all kept trying, clumsily perhaps, but none of us were inclined to give up, sever the tie. In the absence of love, we had been given a sense for the unorthodox gift of a misfit relative, of the tolerance and self-control a difficult person forces us to utilize, internalize, how they help us grow and provide comfort and companionship to a person who genuinely doesn't know how to accept such an offer. This was why when I took my then 13-year-old son, Eamon, to Prague on an adventure to the old country, this is something I've done with all of my kids when they turn 13, I was determined for us to spend a day or two with my father, even if I knew those would be long, long days, especially for my kid. My father, who at this point was dividing his time between the Czech Republic in the summer months and Florida in the winter, wanted very much for us to stay at his house in his birth village, Trebis. Except that the place was run down, smelled of mold and animal waste. Neither the kitchen nor the bathrooms worked properly, and it was really only the yard, which was nice and contained, you know, like this orchard, and and that um, that was really the only part of it that was in reasonable condition. Please, let's not stay here, my son begged. It's creepy. Notwithstanding my usual can-do attitude towards my father, I caved without a second thought. And I don't think my father ever quite forgave me for opting to stay with family friends close by. He felt I'd robbed him of time with his grandson and that I'd chosen outsiders over blood. But we had some magic with him on that trip, too. At a bookstore reading of my novel, The Bone Church, a historical thriller set during the Cold War, uh, mostly in Czechoslovakia, my father was just the star of the Q&A session. For the first time, he recounted his version of my parents' escape from the communists, and he did it with a vim and vigor that I'd never witnessed in him outside of nature. He told the crowd how they'd plotted to obtain permission to take a vacation to the Black Sea after he and my mom had learned that their train from Prague had to stop, had a stop on the poorest border, like between Yugoslavia and Italy. And just like in the movies, 
he found himself crawling to freedom through a field of grass until he came upon a pair of boots. His eyes followed all the way up the body of this, you know, pugnacious looking border guard, and he came face to nozzle with a gun, nearly hissing himself. We claimed to be lost, he cried, saying we were in Yugoslavia on vacation and didn't know our way around. And oh, your mother, oh, your mother, she cried and she begged and she was nice looking and I think they feel sorry for her, but still, you know, they yell and they point their fingers. If we see you here again, you're going on next train back to Prague and they'll probably throw you in prison for a long time. It was all very scary. But my parents didn't give up. My mother traded all of her money and belongings for an Italian couple's passports. She did her hair like the woman, and my father wore a hat, you know, covered up his eyes a little bit. And my, my brother, well, he was too young to need identification, and my brother, my other brother, had passed away by this point. So uh, my older brother was instructed by our parents to pretend to sleep. Thank God the border guards didn't speak Italian to us, my father said. I would have no idea what he was talking about and we would be in jail for 20 years. That great escape was the one true triumph of their marriage. Possibly the only time they'd worked together for a desired outcome and emerged successful. He savored it. In the years following our Prague trip, my father became more untethered. During his summers in the birth country, he lived in his village house, which according to my cousin, had become unlivable. It had been infested by a family of voles, and the kitchen and bathrooms just smelled awful and were completely derelict by then. My cousin offered to fix up the place, knowing how tight with a coin he was, but my father refused. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, he told her. His winters in Florida were spent entirely in the outdoors, mostly on beaches or in state parks. My brother and I tried to convince him to buy a small apartment or even rent one, but he was adamant that no. He preferred to sleep in his car. He wanted to be free, he told us, and he thought an actual home was a huge waste of money. My father has become, for all intents and purposes, homeless, I told my husband. With the onset of COVID, my father had to cancel any plans to visit Prague and was fixated on his health, frightened of getting the virus. While a very fit 81, He'd been having some age-related health issues that concerned him, and, well, once again, I asked him to visit us, but he refused. I am old man now, he said. It is inconvenience to me to have to drive up there. You could fly, I told him. We'll buy you a ticket. But that was a no-go. My father seemed melancholy. An email I received from him on September 14th, 2020 read, I hate this coronavirus, and it is worse for singles like me. In mid-November of the same year, a couple of weeks after he'd last reached out to us, 
a police officer came to my brother's house near Gainesville. Our father had been tested for COVID and had left my brother's address with the clinic. And the officer was concerned because the clinic had indicated that he'd seemed quite ill and had indeed tested positive for the virus. After a missing endangered persons report was filed, our father was finally located through his cell phone and the police did a drive-by of where he was staying. That was a rented one-room camper on a country property, just a dash from a small lake he could bathe in. Delirious and dehydrated, he was taken to the COVID unit in a local hospital, and from then on, our only contact was with the staff that was caring for him. Although he was in pretty bad shape when he arrived, the doctors still told us they thought he would pull through, given how strong and fit he was. They even dubbed him the Flying Wallaby for his propensity to lift himself up by the guardrails on his bed. It was when he started doing somersaults in that bed that the doctors finally had to sedate him and take more drastic measures. But they were to no avail. A week later, my father died. Although our father's presence in our lives had been sparse and floundering, his sudden absence was destabilizing and unexpectedly sad for both me and my brother. He was such a part of your story, my best friend told me. He was. It breaks my heart that he died without any of us at his bedside. Blood relations, as he would say. Chekas. I suppose it's some consola- consolation <laughs> that my brother and I were always afraid that his end would be worse. That he might be found weeks after his death in a national park somewhere, his body already decomposing. Or that he could have fallen victim to foul play as he rarely locked the small van that was his home most nights. A vehicle he'd tricked out with a foam mat and DIY screens that allowed him to roll down the windows to allow for fresh air while keeping out the bugs. He liked to lay there listening to Czech opera on the stereo, looking up the stars through his moonroof. While my brother and his wife went to get a look at his rental camper, well, that was the last place he'd actually live for any period of time, and well, they said it was much farther out in the middle of nowhere than they thought. In fact, it was so far out that the people who saw them driving in came to get a look at the outlanders in their midst. I mean, they actually stood on the sides of the road as they drove up. And upon closer inspection of his living conditions, they discovered that my father's car was filthy, as was the camper. He'd been living in squalor. My sister-in-law was able to hold it together until she and my brother got back into their car and started driving away, but then she just broke down in tears. I'm actually gonna miss that crazy bastard, she told me on the phone later. 
And that's generous of her, considering that my father had always flagrantly excluded her children from her first marriage from any attention or gift-giving. My brother had adopted his wife's kids, raising them alongside his biological children as if they were his own, but that didn't hold much water for our father because they're not Cheka's, he'd said. We decided to cremate our father's remains. It made sense on so many levels, COVID-wise, certainly, and the fact that our father wasn't religious, that also played a role, and that he valued the least expensive option. He had stated as much in his hand-scribbled will. Our cousin in Slovakia requested half of his remains so she could bury them in Srebiz, and we thought this was an excellent compromise and would honor the things he most loved. As soon as we're able, my brother and I pledged that with our families, we would scatter our portion of his ashes in the nature areas he most enjoyed frequenting in Florida, where he thrilled to the fresh air, the cool water, and the sand between his toes, where he loved to suck on blades of grass and nap in the shade of a tree heavy with leaves. He loved those things more than people. The other half of him will be with his blood in the Cheka family burial ground because he loved being a Cheka most of all. Thank you for listening. The usual links, including links to my breast series, which will be on sale on Friday and Saturday, the 29th and 30th of September, will be in the show notes. And I urge you all to think about the people who have impacted your stories, those eccentric relatives, those impossible people who have a much greater influence on us than we realize. Thank you, and until next time, stay cold, my friends.